Friday the 16th of April and this is the second episode of Unsustainable. If you're watching this, well you know you're watching it because you can see my face. If you are listening to this only, I'll try not to visually reference anything. But if I do, the link will be down below to the video version, just in case you want to go and find that time and and look up whatever I referenced. So I'm kind of fitting this in in a busy schedule today. I'm also so it's it's time strain constraint wise. It's um, it's it's nestled between two things, so I can only stay on for a certain amount of time. But but I thought that I would put this on Clubhouse as well, and I think I'm on Clubhouse right now. I don't really know how it works. I've not done, I've not like made a room before. But if I can figure it out as we're going along, I will, I will have some some people come on. Maybe I don't know, and um, and we can we can open this up to to be a bit more of an inclusive talk about about these things that I've noted down. The first of which, let's get into this. The first of which is a social dilemma. I'm a bit late to it. I only just watched it. It's it's a really well shot film. It's probably one of the scariest films I've watched recently <laughs> because it's it's terrifying how much control these big corporations have over our tiny little lives and the fact that we're the product in this we're not even we just almost don't we have as much say as like a battery hen has in how it's treated although we can kind of leave i guess we can vote with our feet and i don't i don't really want to say too much about it because if you've not seen it you should just go and watch it if you have seen it, you'll you'll already be depressed enough without me kind of bringing it up and adding more to it. But it got me thinking. It got me thinking about these other things that that are going, you know, that are going on at the moment. The the difficulty in building an audience, building a brand for yourself with that audience and how these big social networks are the gatekeepers to that. We now have new gatekeepers. For the last 15 years, the gatekeepers kind of got removed. Big publications were the gatekeepers, publishing houses, the TV networks, newspapers, these were all the gatekeepers. And it was amazing when the internet first came around and when it, you know, Web 2.0, came along, it felt like these gatekeepers had gone away. And they had. They, effectively, they had. You could publish your own thing, and you still can. You could publish your own thing, you could you could deliver it up to, to your own audience. The problem now is that audience is governed for you. So you still can reach an audience, but you have to do it in the right way. The problem for me, or at least the problem that I 
I keep running into because of the way I think about these things and, and especially watching The Social Dilemma is I don't want to play the game. I don't want to play the game by their rules. And so I started thinking about like the things that I've learned in the past. Like what what is it that it what does it mean to have an audience? And one of the oldest kinds of audience on the internet was the mailing list. And I think it's really easy to think this has gone away. But it hasn't. It's still as relevant now. In fact, it might be more relevant. I just I just wrote a little blog post. So if you don't if you don't already sort of read it and go in and, and look at it, I on my website seancross.co I've got a little secret daily blog. It's not that secret. The only way it's secret is that you're you've not heard of it. And today I just wrote a little piece about about mailing lists and, and how they might be the answer to this this sort of crises of audience. The the Sorry, I'm just trying to figure out Clubhouse while I'm doing this, and then I'm not sure. Like, I've got no one in there, obviously, because who cares? But <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm pretty sure I'm I'm actively hosting a room. I don't know. We'll see. It's just another another way to get your your sort of voice heard, your story heard. So back to mailingness. The 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 thing about a mailing list is you kind of own it and you can also sort of think of other net networking sites as mailing lists uh, Craig Adams to reference him again he sort of talks about it as as like I think it's like mailing lists in different flavors or something like that so you know Twitter is it's a you kind of they're hosting your mailing list. It's not email, but it's it's our list of people who want to, you know, who have opted in to see your content. But they control it. And it's it's in a different flavour, as it were, to Instagram. The flavour of mailing lists that Instagram offers up is very much more visual and um, yeah, just it's just different. So an actual mailing list, your actual mailing list, if you can build that, that's really, that's a huge asset. I was just watching a Philip DeFranco video the other day where he talked about how YouTube's suppressing his videos and he gives, you know, he gives evidence to to support this and, and from that I kind of fell down a little rabbit hole as you do on YouTube because they control the algorithm, <laughs> they control what you see. I fell down this little rabbit hole of other creators saying that YouTube is suppressing their videos, which is kind of ironic that they were being offered up to me. But they, you know, they, they were. When these videos, they obviously are being suppressed by YouTube for whatever reason or not. Or the creators are basically feeling like they've lost their jobs because 
they're not getting paid what they were getting paid when YouTube was offering this stuff up to other people. And so that is a gatekeeper. That is someone that's getting in the way of you getting your stuff out there. The mailing list, on the other hand, is controlled by you. It's hosted by, maybe by a service, but not a service that's a social network. It's not a service that's algorithmically controlled. And really interestingly, you know, the social dilemma talks about this. Really interestingly, these algorithms, this artificial intelligence, as it were, is getting to the point now where the people who have written it are like almost a, a step or two removed from knowing what it's actually doing. There's a Tom Scott video about this. If I can find it, I'll link it in the description, the show notes where he talks about how YouTube, the people at YouTube don't actually know how the algorithm works because they wrote the AI that wrote the algorithm, which is kind of scary if you think about it. And the social dilemma looked a lot more at Facebook, but it does, you know, it, it applies to YouTube as well. So the the mailing list is one way to go. And then that brings potentially people to your website where you can, you know, you can have the links that will make you money. You can have the the ads on there if you want. You can choose what advertisers go with your your products. And you can then link out to YouTube, out to Instagram, and, and you can bring people into it and then funnel them back out. But that mailing list is people who've opted in to see what you are doing, what you're saying, and it's, as I say, controlled by you. And the other thing, the other note that I put down was that we're at a point now where what we produce is as a response to these algorithms. So the things that you put on Instagram, if you're trying to grow, you put them on to satiate the algorithm. You put them on there to to kind of appease the, this like God that is the algorithm. And you don't know what it is you're actually... You know what you're doing, but you don't know if what you're doing is necessarily what it wants until you get the feedback of whether it got out to people whether you grow, whether you get likes, anything like that. And that's troubling to me. Not because I might not be able to grow because I don't want to play their game, but because the things that are presented to me when I log on to Instagram, the things that are presented to me are getting more and more the same, more and more homogenized because they're all put through this certain filter of what it thinks that I want. But not just, it's not just the filter of what it thinks that I want. There's a two level screen there where before it even chooses what it thinks I want, it's making the people who produce that thing produce what they think that the algorithm might want so that it can then filter that again. So it's like, it's like Smirnoff, it's triple filtered for, for absolute boringness 
it's and that's problematic because I'm not seeing anything that interests me, but somehow it's kind of still keeping me engaged. And it you it doesn't necessarily use the the content as the as the way to keep me engaged anymore. It uses these tricks that it puts it puts the content within to to keep me engaged. So the the mechanisms of, of how we scroll and, and the habits that it knows how to, to sort of influence in us, it uses those to keep us engaged. And that's really interesting from a from a sort of psychological standpoint, but for someone who gets can get depressed or can get anxious based on what they they perceive of of the world outside that is that can be that can be damaging to me because of the stuff that I get offered up and then the time that I maybe would waste on it and so for the most part I don't have the app Instagram on my phone sometimes I'll I'll get it again and I'll I'll put it on there for a while I use later to post because obviously you, you need the app to post stuff unless you use a service like later which is good because I could post things that were interesting to me without having to, you know, interact and play that game that I didn't really want to play. And that kind of feels selfish and one-sided, but if, you know, if not everyone's doing that, it's kind of fine. Sometimes you have to be the creator and not the consumer. Sometimes it's fine to be both. On YouTube, I am definitely both. I really enjoy the videos that I've, you know, from people that I've, I've discovered and and look for and search for and I make sure that I get the stuff that I actually want to spend time on. And I think it's a little bit easier to do that with YouTube because the content is longer form than just looking at one photograph. The content is more, um, it, can, it can be more engaging, it can be more um, educational, you can get a lot more from it. And so it's easier to kind of spend that, to think, oh, I can spend some time sorting who I who I look at. Whereas on Instagram, you just kind of, you follow people and you follow people for maybe the wrong reasons, maybe because you want them to follow you back, you want them to know that you exist. Maybe you're playing some sort of game or you feel like you have to follow, you know, every Instagram account that a friend of yours creates, even if they don't post on there. You kind of have to show solidarity, and and that's that's fine. That's mostly how I use Instagram now. I don't follow many people because I don't look at it, but I do look at YouTube with a bit more, you know, intentionality. The 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 side of that that affects the creator though is how do I do something that's fulfilling but is also is also you know not going to bore people to death isn't going to make people leave maybe they'll want to engage maybe they get something out of it that's i think that's the thing it's getting something out of it what can i produce that that will help people you know get better with their photography get better with their videography what is it that will help people um, help people 
progress in some way and not just like what will keep them interested for a split second while they pass it and I'm not bothered about people passing it I think that's the thing you've got to be okay with is most people are just going to skim right over it maybe they'll give it a like to show some solidarity to, to, to engage with you a little bit but for the most part they will just go past it and so what I was thinking is maybe I create something that maybe I create something that people if they do stop and stay will will give them some benefit but maybe I create something that's more for me what can I do that's more fulfilling for me and so that's where you know uh, 10 days ago I started writing these 100 uh, 100 words little blog posts and I started putting them on my own website but what I'm sort of thinking now is maybe I use Instagram and this isn't a new idea but maybe I use Instagram as a, like a micro blogging site where yeah the picture the picture's there to kind of try and get people to stop but I'm putting my words with it and I'm using it functionally and not just thinking oh no I better post on Instagram otherwise People will think I'm, I'm dead, or people will think I've gone off social media, which I kind of have. So, I do something that I want to do with it, because after all, it is just a tool. I do that, and in return... No, that is the return. The return just is the fulfilling feeling that you get from creating something and putting it out in the world and you have to kind of just let go of it and if it does get traction if people are interested in it that's great if they're not so be it you've done something that makes you feel fulfilled and you know you put it out there it might it might do well it might be the thing that that gets me you know that gets people interested but I don't care if it does or not. I've not started it yet. I've I've started writing the stuff and I'm putting it on my own website, but I've not started pairing that with um, with an Instagram post. But maybe that'll come. The other thing, the other thing um, that this kind of links with a little bit is is working hours, knowing when you're going to work finding the work that fills just enough hours to you know pay the bills and and stuff but also leaves you enough hours in the day to express yourself creatively find something fulfilling to do and yes jobs can be fulfilling but sometimes they aren't and i found that over the last the last couple of days last week i'm working on some stuff that's just it's hustle i've got to get it done i don't like hustle but sometimes things happen. The the delivery of the product was was hampered in some way, and the so the the amount of time I had to shoot it has been heavily compressed. That means yeah, that just means that it's as much as this is work that's usually very rewarding, feels great. This week it's just been it's been tough, and I've had to get it done. And sometimes work is like that. You know, you can't enjoy every single minute of every single day in your job. Sometimes there are going to be 
things that, that make it difficult, that make it not super fulfilling. And you need to find that fulfillment somewhere else. Now maybe you don't find it on the same day, but you need to you need to only work enough so that you can you can be fulfilled by something else, I think. Because the the thing that you do when you're not working almost has to be something that's always fulfilling. It doesn't have to always be joyful, it doesn't always have to be completely satisfying, but it it can't be a stressful thing. It can't be something that 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 takes away energy. It's almost got to be something that gives you energy, whether that feels like it's giving you mental energy. You know, if, if you're working out, yes, you're going to be tired after it, but you have that sense of of um, of joy, of euphoria, of like post-workout um, sort of an uplift in your in your sense of well-being. Now that like I say that doesn't always have to be on the same day as that work maybe the work gets bunched up it doesn't have to be in the same week maybe the work gets bunched up into two weeks and then there's two weeks off where you can do something else or you work less you work more in two weeks and you work less the others whatever that means for you and obviously this kind of mostly applies if you're running your own business if you're working for yourself but maybe there's ways that it can work now that now that working is kind of different, maybe it can, you know, your nine to five can be a nine till seven some days and, and it can be, you know, you can take some extra time off somewhere else. I don't know how that works. Maybe that's, maybe that is something that you can do. Maybe you can, you can work less hours and, and try and produce more in, in the time that you're not working. I don't know. I don't know how it works for people who who don't control their own schedules, but I'm sure there's a way to make it work. The I, I think that's kind of that's kind of it on working hours. I think knowing when you're going to be doing something is can be really important because it allows you to plan around that. And I know um, I know a lot of people don't get don't get that, you know, they find out very close to the time, you know, they're on zero hour contracts, they're working freelance, they find out really close to the time when something's going to come in. I am in that position sometimes, I work freelance, and if a, an interesting job comes in that I actually really want to do, I, you know, I'll take that, if it's even if it's last minute. But I feel like that's probably... That's probably an upside to my work as opposed to like a downside to it. Whereas if you are, you know, you're working on a zero hour contract and you get called up at nine o'clock in the morning and they're like, oh, can you be in in half an hour? That doesn't feel like a bonus because you're not, you don't have any say in that. You, you can't really just say no if you, if you need that work. That's kind of it on working hours, I think. And the, the last, the last sort of big point um, that's sort of big point was well, something that was just it's kind of tangential to this but something I was thinking about because I just um, I just kind of got a phone that is new to me because my my old one was was slowly dying one of the features that I used the most was 
was not working anymore, the, the Apple Pay wasn't working anymore properly. Uh, and if something like Apple Pay doesn't work consistently all the time, you might as well not have it because the the sort of embarrassment, the holding up the queue, the having to like fumble to find your wallet and get it out and, and all that is is enough to make me not ever pull out my phone to use Apple Pay. I'll just pull out the wallet instead, even if the phone is close to hand. So I got well this was given this phone was given to me. It's only one generation newer, but it's it's a newer phone. I had to replace the screen and uh, on the video I will show you the back is just taped up because well I couldn't be bothered trying to figure out how to replace the glass back of this phone so yeah but the the thing that it got me thinking about was was waiting to to replace something and I'm in the I'm in the the time now where I, you know this computer that I'm using this laptop is five years old six years old something like that it's heavy it's slow I mean it, it was light and it was fast five years ago but now it's heavy and it's slow I need it to go in my backpack it fits in there but it makes it really heavy and I'm thinking well now's a good time to replace it because waiting that long buying a new one you get so much more value for your money than if you like upgrade every year and also it's better for the environment it's better for you know better for your finances it's better for so much stuff that why don't you wait to upgrade why i feel like for someone like me i get more satisfaction out of out of waiting and having that much bigger upgrade feeling like it's not just tiny increments that it's better and the the sort of reason behind that is this phone's only one generation better than the one I had and so the features they're indistinguishable almost and whilst that's fine because I'm upgrading from something that was broken to something that works now so that feels like a massive improvement it's if I was to upgrade from from this one to whatever the next one is, the upgrade feels it does there's just not enough there to to want to upgrade. So leave it three or four years, uh, five six if you can, and then maybe upgrade to the newest one and wait another five years. And yeah, so for the computer, that's that's kind of where I'm at, at the moment. If I get a new computer now, it'll be one of those new M1 MacBooks. It'll be a lot lighter. The battery will be significantly better. This one only lasts for about an hour and a half now. It will be faster. It will be better in almost every single way, and it won't cost that much money. This laptop was, you know, two and a half thousand pounds when I got it. It's a lot of money. It provides, you know, it's provided five years of value to me. I hope that upgrading to the next one provides those, you know, that same five years of value. That's my sort of thoughts on on upgrades. And the problem with these things is this computer won't last much longer. The, as I said, the battery only lasts about an hour and a half now. If it lasts any less, it doesn't it doesn't even do its job properly anymore. It 
it needs to be plugged in the whole time. It's not a laptop, it's not a portable computer anymore. It's, it's worth nothing to me then. The same with the phone. If I wait any longer, it is just gonna be a useless brick to me. If I'm not using it for social media, if I'm only using it for phone calls and, and text messages, I might as well just get an old dumb phone. I might as well. There's no, there's no benefit to having a smartphone that doesn't have the features that I use. So, yeah, these. That that's what sets the minimum and the maximum time that I can have something before I do upgrade it. And I think that kind of keeps me away from the obsolescence cycle a little bit because these things will break. You know, I. I will run these cameras into the ground before I get, you know, I, I, I sell them on. The fact that my my main work camera is a seven-year-old um, mirrorless camera that isn't even like pro-grade, you know, it's not a pro-level um, mirrorless camera, it's it's just a tiny bit above entry level, but it still works and it, it earns me money every day and it means keeping this means that I don't have to buy something new. Uh, and actually on that note, there's one thing that I've been thinking about recently that, that kind of goes alongside this. And I've been trying to figure out this, like, this gear idea and like I do like things. I like playing with new cameras. I like, you know, trying out a new lens. What I don't like is spending money on it and I don't like owning it so that it devalues. And that's why I really like keeping stuff for a very long time because then if it does devalue, you've made your money out of it or getting rid of it quickly. So if you buy something, you use it for what you need and then you sell it on that keeps the amount of stuff that I own to a minimum. I'm not constantly, I'm not paying for insurance on stuff that I don't ever really use. Because if, you know, if I've got a, a thousand pound, two thousand pound lens that I barely ever use, but it, you know, it's useful sometimes, I still have to pay insurance on that. That's still devaluing. I know people say that lenses, you know, don't devalue, but they do, especially in this transition between DSLR and mirrorless where you know, companies like Canon just releasing a new version of the macro lens. I'm not going to get rid of my macro lens. It's a fantastic lens, but there's a newer version. So mine's devalued slightly. Not that much, not as much as a body from six, seven years ago, but it has devalued. And so I'm not calling bullshit on the idea that lenses are a good investment. Good lenses are a good investment, but newer lenses with more electronics in, more features that are paired to the attributes of certain cameras maybe aren't as good an investment. Some beautiful cinema glass from 30 years ago, brilliant investment. You will sell that probably for more than you buy it for if you're smart. But I don't know, I don't know why you would buy that thinking about selling it if you're going to buy that, have it forever. If you're not going to have it forever, rent it. 
I think that that makes so much sense to me. Like not owning something, not having it devalue in your possession, unless you use it day in, day out. And I talked about this yesterday in terms of vehicles. Uh, so I use a car club where you, you know, you, you sign up for a membership and you just pick a car out on the street and you can use that. It's very expensive for the time you use it, but I only use a car once every two months. Maybe sometimes I need a van, sometimes I need a car with five seats. Not owning a car and having it devalue in my possession, not having to have that massive upfront payment or the huge monthly payment, to me, that makes far more sense. But the guy that I was talking to yesterday, van for work, uses it every single day. That is making money for him every single day. That's not devaluing in the same way. Yes, it is devaluing. Yes, he had to pay for it up front or with monthly costs. But once those, you know, once that once that upfront payment was paid or the monthly costs paid off the whole thing, he's just purely making money on it then. And that's where you recoup that investment. For me, a car would be wouldn't recoup the investment at the moment that is so yeah this this like i'd love i do love camera equipment i love playing with it but i always kind of say i hate it and it's because of this frugal mindset that i've developed around my business i'd sometimes say to people you know i've i've got a lot of freedom with what i do because I've got these few recurring clients that um, that kind of pay all the bills, all the overheads are covered by them. And so I have a lot of extra free time to take on more interesting projects, to do free stuff, to, to spend on self-improvement. And I think that sounds really, really privileged. And it is, but it's a conscious decision. And it's a conscious decision to work with less, to be more frugal. I know that if I go out and buy the lens that I want, I'm in particular thinking of the Sony 20mm 1.4. If I went out and bought that, that's a thousand pounds. That's a thousand pounds that I then have to recoup in order to have that free time back have that those savings back that's money that could be spent on producing a documentary and i'd get so much more from producing a documentary with the stuff that i own because i own plenty of stuff already i'd get so much more from producing that than i would from just buying that lens and then having to pay the insurance on it and the depreciation and all that sort of stuff so i think i think it's it's um with equipment, definitely, it's a it's an activity, it's a study in what is essential to you. And I know I always talk about essentialism, minimalism, stuff like that, but the essentialism thing really, it really works. Thinking about what is going to fulfill you, what is going to progress you, it really helps in 
narrowing down the things that you need and the things that you don't need. And I think that is, that's been key to my happiness and success over the last couple of years. I've not been happy all the time, I've not been successful all the time, but the times that I have been, have been a product of that. I think that's where I'm going to end it today. No one joined on Clubhouse, which is not a surprise because I didn't promote it or anything. I think the idea with Clubhouse is that you promote it beforehand. You say that I'm going to host this room at this time, this day, and then you know people can, can join in then. But this is primarily a podcast about me speaking through the things that I'm you know, noting down through the week. The, it's kind of like it's a, a life update it's a it's an update on ideas because I like to share ideas that I think is is the thing that I'm trying to to be known for to be good at this originally was like storytelling but I think I can I can condense it down even more and it's about sharing ideas and that is what, that's what my, that's one of my core values as, a, as an individual and as a business and as someone who puts stuff out into the world. And it's, it's almost like my, my life is a computer game and I, I'm going through and I'm unlocking these things. You know, two years ago, I unlocked the idea that my core values within my core values was ethical, uh, sustainable businesses that I wanted to work with. I wanted to only share sustainable, ethical stories. And now, two years down the line, I'm unlocking this new core value, which is, you know, I only share, I'm, I'm aiming to only share ideas. I'm not, I'm not trying to sucker people away with, uh, with just beautiful pictures and b-roll I'm not even trying to grab people in with like brand story as much as I am trying to help share ideas my own other people's giving stuff away uh, as much as I can I want to just be giving stuff away and that sounds ridiculous for someone who needs to earn a living but that's what I want to do and I want to the more that I can do that and the better I can get at it the more opportunities that opens up for you know for for sponsorship by individuals who are interested for sponsorship from from businesses who who share those values and um, and the more that then allows me to share those ideas and hopefully it's a it's like a beautiful cycle that ends up with me just being able to to kind of help people share these ideas share the ideas behind personal growth and business growth but on a sustainable small scale company of one kind of mentality and yeah that's that's it from today hopefully if if you are a person who's listening to this you will join on, you know, you'll follow me on Clubhouse. I'll put a link down in the show notes in the description. And yeah, I can I can take some calls as it as it were next time on 
clubhouse and uh, we can turn this into a little bit more of an interactive thing. Right, that's me done. See you next week.